This is our fourth Sunday in Romans. We're going to cover chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. There are blue Bibles in the center of your table. We ask that everyone who can read grab a Bible. We're going to have you follow along. We're going to have you jumping into this book. Because if you don't jump into this book, you're going to miss something that the Lord wants you to do. So we're in Romans, page 1040. Next week, we're going to finish chapter 1. And so I'll cover everything from 18 to 32 next week. So write that down in your worship guide and read that some throughout the week. And uh, come ready next week to share what God has shown you. So Romans 1, 18 through 23. So far in Romans... We've seen something pretty neat. Verses 16 and 17 are two of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture. The gospel is the power of God to salvation to whoever believes. So I preached on that last week. That sermon is available online. I gave some very basic but incredibly important truths from those two verses. And I would ask that you listen to that if you weren't able to be here last week. So, but last week, what we saw, we looked, in, we, we looked closely at 16, 17, and 18. What we saw was that God is revealing two things. God is revealing first His righteousness. That's good, right? We like that. And we know God is righteous. We also saw that God is revealing His wrath. What's another word for wrath? Anybody know? Anger. Anger. Yep. Do y'all know that God is an angry God? Have you ever thought much about God being angry? Have you ever been angry? Yeah. I got news for you. Let me go ahead. If If you're worried that this is bad news, that God gets angry, I want to tell you His anger is very different from ours. We often sin in our anger, don't we? But God does not sin. And He can be infinitely angry. And angrier than anybody has ever been. And He has not sinned, nor will He sin in His anger. So we've got the righteousness of God that God is showing us. We also have the wrath and the anger of God that God is showing us. Now you're like... Okay, God's angry. You know, a lot of us know that, you know, but but for some of us, that might be a little bit of a new idea. I want to tell you something. We're, you know, a little over halfway through chapter one. We're going to be talking about the anger of God until we get halfway through chapter three. But I want to tell you something. That's a good thing. It is actually good that God is angry. If God didn't get angry, he wouldn't be good. And we're going to spend the next, I don't know, two to three months. I'm going to spend the next two to three months showing you the goodness of God in his anger. So with that being said, I want to read verses 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely 
His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's what we're going to do. Take about five minutes. Read this passage to yourself as much as you can. Meditate on it. Soak in it. See what God is saying. See what Paul is saying. And after about five minutes or so, when the time is right, your table leader will begin your, our discussions. All right, y'all. Let's wrap up our discussions. Let's wrap up our discussions. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's God's wrath. And I want to tell you today that His wrath is good. His wrath is right. And His wrath is just. What do I mean by his wrath is just? I mean that there's justice to it. And we live in a world today where a lot of people are crying out for justice this and and justice that. And there's a lot of faulty ideas going on in the world today about justice. But God has his own particular brand of justice. And that's the real thing. That's true justice. And God's justice... He calls that which is right, right. And he calls that which is wrong, wrong. We live in a world today where people are calling evil good and people are calling good evil. I want to tell you that God in his anger is perfect and right and just in every single way. And that's really good news because I know that God in his anger is never going to mistreat anybody. I am an imperfect parent. And there have been times where I've looked at my children and the conflicts that are present. And I would make a wrong judgment about what I thought was going on. And as when I made my attempt to bring justice to a situation or to end a conflict... Or to bring reconciliation in my imperfection, in my limited knowledge, and in my heart that isn't fully redeemed yet, there are times when I bring about or when I bring something unjust into a situation, and then it would hurt my family. But with our Father in heaven, with our God, He is angry at just the right time. He is, y'all know there's different degrees of anger. Sometimes you get just a little bit angry. Every once in a while you get really, really angry. He exercises his anger correctly and rightly every single time. Every single time. God has never sinned in his anger. And we're going to explore this a lot in the weeks ahead. So verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The rest of verse 18 tells us why. 
So the first part of 18 says God is showing His wrath. The second part of verse 18 tells us why. And then the rest of our passage today, it tells us how He's revealing His anger. And we'll look more at how He's revealing His anger next week, how He's showing it. So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Why is God angry? It's because we've been ungodly. What does it mean to be ungodly? It means to act in a way that's different from God. What does it mean to be unrighteous? It means to act in a way that is not in accord with God's heart and mind as it is revealed to us in His law and throughout His Word. You ever obe- have you, anybody obeyed the Bible perfectly? No. Anybody obeyed all Ten Commandments perfectly? No, not at all. Well, that's why God is angry. And on top of that, in our world today, we, there are many, and all of us were included in this category to one degree or another. All of you have done this. All of us have done this, myself included. We've known what was true, and we've tried to suppress it. We have tried to hold it back. We have tried to not let it come in the room. It's pushing that door open, and we're right there using all of our might to hold it shut. And it is for this, these reasons that our God is angry. So we've all been ungodly and unrighteous. We've all suppressed the truth. What did Adam and Eve do? They, they got it started. And we love to read that story and be like, man, I can't believe they did that. But what we don't realize is we did the same, we did the same thing all the time. Adam and Eve, I mean, they, they had this, I mean, we don't know the details, but they had this incredible relationship with God. I mean, if anyone should have got right, it, it should have been them. So in that, that sense, you know, I see how we can be a little bit more upset with them because we haven't seen God the way that they saw God. But if they knew so much of God and then pushed them out of their lives to the degree that they did, then what makes us any different? What makes anyone in this world any different? The serpent whispered the lie to Eve. Eve whispered the lie to Adam. Man, they just went for it. God... We know what's right, we know what's wrong, but we don't want to hear it. And I'm going to do things my way today. You ever done your thing? Things? I'm sorry. Have you ever done things your way today? Have you done that this week? That is the suppression of the truth. When we see God, and we know God, and we know what God wants, and we say, no, you all, that, that's why God is angry. So how else have we suppressed the truth? Let's get into verse 19 and 20 together. What can be known about God is plain to them. Who? The ungodly and the unrighteous people who suppress the truth. We learned something very important. That there are basic things about God that are plain. Just as you can look at me and see that I'm a white male with short hair, people can see that God is holy and righteous and perfect. It is plain. It is simple. 
And God gives this revelation. God shows everyone on the planet basic things about himself. All right. So, verse 19 and 20, we're talking about everyone who's ever lived in our world at any point in history. And, every, of course, everyone that's living today. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You all, we have, what did that last sentence say? They or we are without excuse. When Paul writes that, he's talking about Judgment Day. And we're going to get into Judgment Day in chapter 2. He's talking about Judgment Day. Do you all know you're going to have to stand before God one day and give an answer for how you've lived your life, for what you've done, with what He has shown you? And on that day, you will have no excuse for your ungodliness. You will have no excuse for your unrighteousness. You will have no excuse. Nobody will have any excuse for how they suppressed the truth. But our God is just and right in pouring out his wrath and anger. And we have absolutely no excuse. Now what we're going to see in the rest of chapter 1 is Paul teaching us about God's anger in this life before we die. But when we get into chapter 2, we're going to be looking more at final judgment. Did y'all know that there is wrath and anger from God in this life? So, the basic things about God is plain. Why? Because God showed it to them. Yeah, I went up to someone this morning. I had a, We were talking about something. I wanted to show, show, show somebody a picture of something on my phone that had to do with what we were talking about. I put my phone in their face. I showed it to him. Right? God has taken everyone by the head and he has stood right in front of them and he said, look at me. Look at who I am. Look at my majesty. Look at my glory. Look at my holiness. Look at my supremacy. All these things. God has been revealing himself through what has been made. Y'all see that in there? His invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature, they have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So God's eternal power, his divine nature, we see that in nature. Listen to Psalm 19, 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. Anytime you see something beautiful that God has done or made, anytime you look out into this creation, 
you can see God's handiwork. You can see his invisible attributes. You can see his divine nature. You can see his eternal power. Creation is testifying to the majesty and to the presence and power of our God. Let me read Psalm 19 again. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. What type of speech? Speech about God. What type of knowledge? Knowledge about God. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice... Whoa, that's saying that when creation speaks of God, somebody's hearing it every time. When creation speaks about God, somebody hears it every time. And anyone who wants to listen can hear it. Verse 4 says, Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Right there in Romans 1 verse 20 when it says in the things that have been made. That word made in the original language is where we get the word poem from. When people write or create a poem, don't they usually intend to communicate something? Don't they usually have an intention or a design? And in poetry, isn't one of the goals of your writing to to be beautiful? Is it not true that poets, when they write, they just kind of stick themselves in it big time and you read the poem or you look out at what has been made and you see the creator or the writer of that poem? All creation testifies to a God who is supreme and majestic. So, creation reveals truth about God, right? And God shows everybody something about himself. I want to ask you this. What is the nature of what God teaches us? You know, yeah, creation's telling me about God, but what exactly is it telling me? I mean, it says it shows his eternal uh, power and his divine nature, but what exactly does that mean? And we also need to ask this question, and this is a hard question, but it's, it's important. You know, we know there's people on the planet who live their whole lives and die and they never hear about Jesus. And they never hear about the gospel. I mean, we've got that problem right here in our nation. We've got that problem right here in Gates County. But there are places in our world where if someone really wanted to know the true God, they might have to travel over 100 miles before they find the first person who believes the gospel, like we do. Doesn't seem fair, does it? Is there a way that that person can get saved if they never hear the name of Jesus? Do these two verses help us think, okay, they can know God? You know, we ask the question sometimes, what, you know, what about the innocent tribesman way off on that almost deserted island? You know, he's probably got dark skin. He's probably never seen a white man. It's, it's that kind of thing, you know? And, and, you know, he doesn't know how to read or write. Maybe his language doesn't even have an alphabet. But you know what? They've been doing their thing there for generations and for centuries. What about him? You know, does, does he have a chance to get to know God if no one knows the gospel? I want to share with you today that what this verse tells us is that in the world, in creation, we know enough about God to know this, that we should worship him.
But nowhere in these verses does it say that creation testifies to the gospel specifically of Jesus Christ. And that is the only thing that saves. So that question, what about that innocent tribesman out on that deserted island who's never heard anything about Jesus or seen a Bible or anything like that? You know, that's a serious question, but there's a a, a big problem with that question that prevents us from being able to answer it. And that is that the innocent tribesman, he does not exist. He does not exist. There's no tribesman that's innocent. Just like none of us are innocent. Because we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. So, what do we do with this problem? Okay, God shows people enough of himself so that they know they're obligated to him or should worship him. And then, you know, in this passage and just in our observation of life, we know that when people know what's right, they still do what's wrong, right? So, you know, what about people who've never heard the gospel? And what is the nature of this revelation in these verses? Y'all want to ask you this question. Why is it that God judges people? Does God judge people because they rejected the gospel? Is that the primary reason that he did it? Does it? Does God send people to hell because they didn't believe in Jesus? Is that the primary reason? It's not. The primary reason that God judges people, the primary reason that people will spend eternity in hell is because they've sinned against God. Now, will people who reject the gospel go to hell? Absolutely. They rejected their only way to God, their only way out of hell. But will people who have never heard the gospel be judged by God? Yes, they will. Is that fair? What does this verse say? It says they are without excuse. See, we live in a world today where we think, well, I know what's right and I know what's wrong. So, you know, God's going to be okay with me and God will be okay with them too if they knew what was right and knew what was wrong. And I said, no, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible says at all. Well, God knows the intentions of my heart and and I'm sure there's some good folks out there who've never heard of the gospel. Surely God will let them in because they never heard it. No, that's not what the Bible says. You know what the Bible says about the intentions of our heart? It says they're evil. Corrupt. We're going to see that, especially in the beginning of chapter 3. Y'all, we are dead in sin and transgression. And even people in the farthest, most remote corners of this earth have rejected God, and they are dead in their sin and in their transgression also. You all, we aren't punished because we reject the gospel. We are punished because we reject God and have broken His law. God doesn't punish us because we reject the Savior, but He punishes us because we've rejected God and we have transgressed His law.
There is not enough revelation in nature and in creation to save anybody. But there is enough revelation in nature and in creation to condemn everyone. Because everyone sees the majesty of God to one degree or another. And everyone knows they should bow down and worship him. But nobody has done that perfectly. Except for Jesus. Y'all, he's the only one. Some people say, whoa, 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 I got major problems with this. Y'all, you know, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man can come to the Father except through me. So that right there makes it clear. If you don't know the name of Jesus, you can't be saved. Acts 4, 12, we covered this in depth earlier this year as we were going through the first seven chapters of the book of Acts. But it says, Peter says, there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Look this up. John 14, 6, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. You have to hear the name of Jesus if you will be saved. Flip to Romans chapter 10 very quickly. You're in Romans 1. Go to chapter 10 very quickly. Uh, chapter 10, verse 13. Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on him and whom they have not. I'm sorry. Okay. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So how do you get saved? You got to call on the name of the Lord Jesus, right? Verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how... Are they to preach unless they are sent? Then look at verse 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Y'all, we get saved by faith alone. There's no other way to be saved. But what is our faith in? Is our faith in some incredible God and that's it? Yes, our faith is in, in an incredible God. But our faith is in something or someone so much greater than just an incredible God. Our faith is specifically in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. He's the only way to salvation. So look, it says that in verse 17. Where do we get faith from? It comes from hearing the Word of Christ. And the Word of Christ is about Christ and no other. And if you look back at verse 13, 14, 15, it says clearly... That how can someone believe in Jesus and be saved if they've never heard of Jesus? You all, there is no innocent tribesman out there. Okay. All of mankind is condemned to hell. But the only hope that that innocent tribesman has is believing in Jesus Christ. But before he can do that, someone has to go and tell him about Jesus. You know, some people think that, you know, surely... If someone hasn't heard of Jesus, there's a way that they can get to know God. But it's not true. It's not true. And we think, you know, well, those who've never heard, God's going to give them another chance at some other point. Well, if that were true, then wouldn't we be doing a disservice to go and tell them about Jesus? Because then if they rejected him, that would bring absolute condemnation, right? You know, the reasoning is faulty. You all... It is up to the church. And by the church, I don't mean the guy like me who gets paid to do ministry. It is up to us collectively, together, 
to make sure that the name of Jesus reaches every nook and cranny of this community and every nook and cranny of this planet. So, no one has an excuse before God because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all of us should have known that, we worship, that He should be worshipped. Let's get into verse 21 real quick. Although they knew God. Who knows God? Everybody. Everybody. Now this isn't talking about a saving knowledge of God like you have if you're a Christian. But it's talking about head knowledge about God and who He is and what He's like. So for although the ungodly and unrighteous people of verse 18, although they had knowledge about God, what did they do? They didn't honor Him as God. Y'all, they failed to worship God. They didn't give thanks to Him. Instead of telling God, thank you for every single thing, they were either ungrateful altogether or they thought that what they had came from something else and they gave glory and thanksgiving to something that was created, to something that was false, to something that was less than the true God. So for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But what happened? They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. I want to tell you something, and especially for you younger people in here. If you're in here and you're trying to figure out, you know, this church thing is for my parents, but I'm not all in yet. I'm not really sure if I want this to be mine. I, you know, it sounds like a good thing, but there's all this other stuff that I want. I don't want to miss out on. If that's where you're at today, I want to tell you, if you reject what God is teaching you in this season of life, you're going to end up like these folks in verse 21. You're going to become futile in your thinking and your foolish heart will be darkened. Y'all, anytime you turn a light off, does it get dark in the room? Yeah, pretty basic rule of physics, right? Anytime you shut the light of God out of your life, your mind and your heart gets dark. And why are so many people in our world trying to figure out what in the world is going on today? It's because they don't have no light. They've shut God out. And they're wandering around in their own head. And instead of taking the basic things that God has taught us in His Word and revealed in Jesus Christ, they're trying to figure it out. All out without God, and they've got the wrong starting point. Do not shut God out of your life. Do not suppress the truth. You will become futile or empty in your thinking. Your head is going to be empty of anything that's good or true or right. And your foolish heart will be darkened. God will remove the light that you currently have. And you will plunge to disaster and despair. Take what we're doing here at Hope Fellowship from His Word and make it yours. Grab hold of it. Have ownership of it. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Put Him first in absolutely every way and avoid this dark path that so many people in our world are going down today. So, how do we suppress the truth? Verse 22 and 23, we thought we were wise, but we became foolish. Y'all, everyone in the world thinks more highly of themselves than they should. I'm the first one, okay? 
But those that have rejected God, they think they are on top of it. Many of them do. But they are deceived about themselves. And they're fools. So what do they do after that? They exchange, verse 23, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You all, we are supposed to worship the Creator. But if you don't worship the Creator, you're going to end up worshiping the creation. And nobody has any business worshiping something that has been made. Who made God? Nobody made Him. There was never a moment in eternity that He did not exist. He is the only uncreated one. He is the only creator. But when you push God out of your life, you get all confused about that. And instead of giving glory to the one who deserves it, you're going to give glory to something that you see. And that glory, you know, other parts of the world, they make little statues and they bow down and they do their thing. They do big statues. They, they, they do all kinds of different things that we're not familiar with. But here in our world, we've got girlfriends, we've got boyfriends, we've got jobs, we've got boats, we've got video games, we've got football teams, we've got all these things. And none of those things are evil in and of itself. But we have an improper relationship. We have an idolatrous relationship with them. And every single person that you know, me included, participates in idol worship. Now God is saving us from it. If you're a Christian, he's breaking you from these things. He's removing the sin in your life as he sanctifies you over a long period of time throughout your Christian life. But everyone that you know that doesn't know God is worshiping something. And it's something that has been created. So, what do we do with what I've shared with you today? I want to share four things with you real quick. I think every one of us in here, if you know God, you want to tell other people about God. You want to tell people about Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection. You want to tell people about what the the good news of God's kingdom. Well, how do we do that? I want to read this to you. Um, One of my favorite pastors read it. He says, Never undertake to prove what everybody knows already. Never undertake to prove what everybody knows already. When you are in discussions with the office atheist or with the radical secularist in your family at the Christmas reunion, do not accept their invitation to step into a neutral place from which you can prove to them that God exists. For to do so grants legitimacy to the heart of their rebellion. You have acknowledged that what he really does not know I'm sorry, you have acknowledged that he really does not know and that he would really like to know. He is holding an overinflated beach ball underwater and has been doing it so long that his arms are quivering. And he invites you to accept the challenge of proving to his satisfaction that beach balls do not exist. Now, what in the world does that mean? It means because God has shown everybody something about himself. That when an atheist or someone who hates God 
wants you to prove to them that God exists. Don't even go down that road with them. Don't even, if someone's genuinely trying to figure out and has genuine intellectual, you know, hang-ups, maybe from what they were taught at university or whatever, you know, yeah, go down that road. But the majority of people who don't know God and, and get into that discussion with you, they're not open to being persuaded. And the truth is, they're inviting you into a swimming pool with them that you should never get in. They're inviting you to argue about something that is absolutely not, not like, I mean, it's a done deal. Like, we know that they know something about God. And if in our relationship, in our discussions with them over time, we're just only arguing about the existence of God, then we're never going to get to what counts. And that is their need for God and God himself revealed in Jesus Christ in the gospel. So he said the unbeliever is holding an overinflated beach ball underneath the water. And keep in mind, it's a crystal clear pool and you can see quite well. But he's been, you know, it's hard to hold it under, you know, when I go swim with the kids, I like to hold something under the water and pop it up when they get real close to me. You know, and that's just one of the sick twist things I do as a father who loves my kids. You know, but it's not easy to hold that thing down, is it? Well, they want you to argue, you know, is God real, is he not? And you're sitting there looking like, like just let it go. You know he's real. Stop trying to convince me that he's not. You know he's real. You know, tickle him. Tickle them in the armpit so they get weak and, they, and the beach ball goes. Engage their conscience. Ask them, have you ever lied? Ask them, have you ever you know, stolen anything? Have you ever called someone a fool? Have you ever done something that you regret or just been horribly selfish and wrecked your life? And every single one, including the atheist, is going to say, yes, of course I have. Ask them those questions. Then all of a sudden you engage their conscience and they see that they have a need. And if you do that with them, you're going to get a lot further with them than you would if you're just going back and forth with intellectual arguments. And I'm going to just go ahead and assume that most of us in here, myself included, you know, we don't have all the academic arguments for the existence of God in our head. I mean, I've read some books on it. I know some stuff. But I'm not as smart as many of the folks out there. But I do know this. People have a conscience. And people have seen something of God in this world. Because of that, I can tell them about God and tell them their need for God without having to argue about all the stupid stuff that some people want to argue about. So that's the first thing. In your witness, don't argue about the existence of God. Just speak to them their need for Christ and the gospel. Secondly, and this is for us church people. Do not worship created things. Do not worship your homestead. Do not worship your children. Do not worship your hobbies. Do not worship your job. Do not worship your pets, your video games, your favorite tea shows, your schoolwork, the A plus that you didn't get on the test. Do not worship your girlfriend or your boyfriend, your husband, your wife. All of these things are created things and not God himself. And these things aren't bad when God is ultimate in our affections. But when we give these things more attention and affection and love than we should, we make them ultimate 
And as soon as we love something that's been given to us more than we love God himself, we are guilty of idolatry. You all, the last verse of 1 John says, keep yourself from idols. Church, worship God and him alone. Thirdly, I got two more. I want us all, anyone in here who's a Christian, I want you to acknowledge how broken your thinking was before you became a Christian. And some of us in here, we've been Christians for decades. Some of us, not quite as long. Wherever you're at, whether it's been 40 years or two years, acknowledge how broken your life and your thinking was before you became a Christian and realize that you're still growing up and there's probably a lot of stupid stuff you still believe. I'm considering making a video this week of something really stupid that I believed <laughs> once upon a time. You know, as, as one who loved God, I just had stupid ideas about God. But over time, as I study His Word, I see that those things are wrong. So realize and understand there's more to learn. And fourthly, while the wrath of God is revealed against man, we saw that in verse 18. We need to realize that that's not the only thing that God is presently showing. But God is continually revealing His righteousness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Was I talking about you when I was saying you're trying to block God out of your life? You know, I mentioned a lot of bad, sinful stuff that all of us have done. But are you sitting here right now thinking about all that stuff and thinking that there's no way I'm going to heaven? Are you sitting here thinking about every way that you've blown it, every lie that you've told? Maybe you've even already lied today. You're sitting there thinking, I am so bad, I'm going to church every week. How in the world is God going to let me in? There's no way God can love me. I want to tell you that God is revealing His righteousness. And in his righteousness, he offers hope. He pours out his love and his goodness and his mercy. He looks at sinners just like you and I. And he says, come to me. See, you know yourself and you think you're sick inside. But the truth is, you're about a hundred times sicker than you think. And God knows every detail of it. And he still loves you and he still wants you. And he still says, come to me, believe in me, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. As it says in Romans 10, 13, he's saying, I want you come into my family now and turn to me. Turn to me in faith. Turn to me in repentance. I will save your soul. So if you're scared of the anger of God, good. You're in the right spot. But don't. Stay there. Look to the righteousness of God as it is revealed in the gospel. And you will be saved. You will be, have hope. So how do I summarize this last point? If you're not saved, you need to believe in Jesus Christ now and come to him and he will receive you as you are. Let's pray together.